Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So guys, I have some amazing news. On International Men's Day, November 19th, come and join me and some esteemed guests such as Johnny Benjamin, Simon Thomas, Hope Virgo, Tom Chapman and more as we partner with Sure Mind Charity Beyond and the Lions Barber Collective for an evening with some of the celebrated authors from Trigger Hub debunking myths around men's mental health. As a guest, in person or online, you will be part of a conversation as we tackle some of the all-too-common manner myths from my book, Time to Talk, How Men Think About Love, Belonging and Connection, what it really means to be a man in 2021. It's not one to miss, so head to the link in the description to RSVP today or head over to mantalk.live to get your tickets now. That's head over to mantalk.live to get your tickets now. Welcome to Time to Talk. This week, we have a brilliant conversation where I'm honoured to be joined by Sam Delaney. A bit about Sam. Sam is a writer and podcaster from London who has worked in the British media for 20 years as a print journalist, magazine editor, TV news reporter, radio presenter and creative consultant. He hosts the Top Flight Time Machine podcast and writes a podcast regularly about mental health via his Substack blog called The Reset. He is also the author of three books, Get Smashed, the story of the men who made the ads that changed our lives, Night of the Living Dad, and Mad Men and Bad Men. He spent years in journalism, and this conversation is about how we navigated careers in journalism, our experience with mental health, and the pressures of expectations in masculinity in the traditional newsroom. We also spoke about his battles with depression, addiction, and how he overcame that and turned his life around to talk more about mental health and in men. So that's the conversation we have coming up, and I'm looking forward to you hearing it. But before we get into the show, if you're new here, you probably don't know that I write a weekly blog on my Substack called the Heart to Heart Letters. And here I write letters around our own existential questions about what it means to be human, essentially. It is this podcast in written form and it's a lot more introspective, gives you something to think about, gives me something to think about. And I wanted to start off these episodes going forward with a heart-to-heart lesson or an idea. And one of them is what it means to be kind to ourselves. And 
the only way that I can really explain or express this is by figuring out and thinking about how it affects me on a day-to-day basis and what that looks like. So I struggle a lot with self-kindness, self-compassion. And it's one of the reasons why I put a lot of my heart into my book, Time to Talk. And why I put a lot of that into what I'm doing with my training, with my clients, with the things that I work on and the and the people that I communicate with on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, it's easy for me to be kind to other people because I think that it's important. I think kindness is important. But a lot of the things I'd found was that having that kindness sent back and brought back to you and giving back to you is very difficult. There was a moment a few weeks ago and where I was doing a mindfulness exercise and a lot of the the meditation and mindfulness exercises that I tend to do revolve around loving kindness meditations. And those meditations are very important for me, somebody who needs to be able to explore and reflect on self-compassion and what and um, and kindness with several people and different things. So you focus where your um, self-compassion and compassion is going. So you have compassion for people that you love, for people that are neutral, for people that you have strong feelings of dislike for. And then you you know, show what that compassion looks like to yourself, essentially. And I always struggled with that last bit, with that sharing that compassion to yourself. And I always found it interesting about how far a smile from somebody goes. Now, when we smile at some people, we make people feel a particular way. It usually inspires comfort, acceptance, um, love, connection. And it's so difficult to know what it's like for you to smile at you. Like It's weird to sit in front of a mirror, say, and smile at yourself genuinely because you've got so much that you're kind of dealing with um, in front of you. To sit there and smile at yourself, it feels strange, it feels weird, it feels odd. And when you are thinking about being compassionate to yourself, it's essentially that. It's having you show up for you. So I regularly do a fitness class where, you know, it's three different stations, it's very Barry Boot Camp. It's not necessarily Barry's boot camp, but it's, you know, there's a lot of those classes around where you do the, the the cardio, you do the bag work and you do, you know, weights in the middle and it's like interval sessions and things like that. And I got on the treadmill and it was something the instructor said that really struck me. And she said, look in that mirror, make sure you're giving yourself eye contact because the treadmill was facing, was right up against the, the, the mirrored wall. 
Um, and I was running on it, running on it, running on it. And I noticed that I wasn't looking at myself. I wasn't looking at who I was in that um, in that moment. I was just kind of focusing on the speed buttons. I was focusing on whether my feet were running correctly. I was looking at everything but myself. And that was a very important lesson for me because that came actually after when she said the second thing, which was, how are you supposed to get through this if you cannot look yourself in the eye and get yourself through this? Self-love is the cause and the cure for you to be getting through this extremely difficult and intense moment of running on the treadmill. And it just made me think back to all of the exercises and the things that I'm reading and the things I'm learning and putting into practice and the way that all of these words are becoming so mainstream with the self-love, the self-compassion, connection, all of that. And it was just in those very small moments that I felt super connected to myself. I began to look myself in the eye as I was running. I didn't worry about whether my feet were landing correctly um, and or anything. I was just running and I was just saying to myself, you've got this, you've got this, you've got this. And it got me through to the end of it. And that's kind of what I wanted to impart on you guys and you who's listening to say that you've got this, you have this. But it's one thing for me to say it to you and for me to believe it from what I'm saying to you. But it's another thing for you to say it to yourself. It's another thing for you to sit down or to to look at yourself and say, you got this. And it's something that I struggle with still to this day. And I'm working on and I'm trying my hardest to navigate and pull myself through. So one thing I will say is that you are not alone. I'm with you, with you on that. I haven't cracked the code. I haven't cracked the the method. But it's something to think about. It's something to think about. You've got this. Say it to yourself regularly. I put on my Instagram page the other day what I painted on my mirror. Well, a post-it note. And it said, I want everything for you. I want everything for you. And in some ways, this podcast itself is helping me fully word the affirmations that I need to hear for myself and do for myself and guide myself to. Because I worry sometimes if I didn't have the podcast, would I say these aloud? And the importance of having affirmations and of having words of deep connection is to say them aloud and to believe them. So if you have a journal, I would say to put these down as some journal prompts. What do you want for yourself? What does self-love look like for me? And how can I get through this with myself and for myself?
and they're just three ways of exploring and expanding because the important thing is that we live in an expanded state and what that does it means that we are open to trying open to learning and open to loving and with that being said let's get on with the show this is my conversation with Sam Delaney don't forget to rate review and subscribe thank you talk soon all right welcome Sam Delaney welcome to the show pleasure thanks to have for you. having me Alex it's a pleasure yeah how are you doing today I'm okay, thanks. I've got a bit of a sore throat, but other than that, I'm feeling, you know, okay with the it's world. It's not ideal yeah. for a podcast conversation, is it? No, no, it is. It, I'm capable of speaking. It takes a lot to stop me from speaking. It would have to be really <laughs> bad. But yeah, uh, physically, I'm, you know, 80%. Yeah, yeah, I hear it. I hear it. Um, well, the reason why I wanted to speak to you today, and it's, um, it's a pleasure to have you here, is pretty much because of the it's international men's day approaching um, and we are in Movember and you know you've got a fascinating story around addiction and alcoholism but also I'm very fascinated around men in their midlife going to therapy Mm. and having that and having that kind of courage to go um, as somebody who has been in therapy for um, you know at least four years now I'm always interested as to what you know the driver's for a lot of men um, going into therapy and stuff. What have your experiences been with therapy? Well, in 2011, I had what I now reflect on as, I don't know whether it was a breakdown or not, but it was my first really real experience of a level of anxiety that was just all-consuming and just completely... It, you know, it just overcame me. It overwhelmed me in a way that was really a massive shock to me. I'd always been someone who'd suffered from anxiety, although I'd never given it that label because actually growing up, we didn't really have those labels. I didn't really know what it was. I would have just mm. said, oh, I sometimes get a bit worried. And I would have really hidden that from almost everyone around me as well because I would have thought it was a bit weak or stupid or whingy to be someone who who worried or got anxious that much but what in 2011 it i there was a sort of a i don't know i I guess i was 36 and i really got myself in a terrible state and i had no idea that even then doesn't seem that long ago it's 10 years ago but there was no conversations really going on uh about this sort of stuff and certainly in wider society certainly not in the kind of circles that I tended to to socialize in or be in it was not it was just not discussed stuff like this because I felt I didn't have a good enough reason to be feeling the way that I did which was really awful like totally panicked like couldn't sleep at all going endless night upon night not sleeping a wink feeling on the verge of tears feeling incapable of working or being creative um like sensitive to the degree that I couldn't have a single conversation without it almost ruining me inside mentally and emotionally. It was like nothing I'd experienced before. So, and it was, I was so shocked. I thought, what the hell's going on? I went to see my, one of my older brothers. I've got three older brothers and one of them I sort of reached out to 
we're quite close. And I reached out to him and said, I don't know what the hell's going on here, mate, but I cannot stop worrying. I am in a state nonstop and it's been going on for weeks now. And he said to me, yeah, you should go to your GP. And I said, what's the GP going to do? This is how naive I was back then. Mm. Um, and I said, well, what, what would I go to a GP for? What are they going to give me antibiotics? And he said, no. <laughs> He'll give, he said he, he might refer you to someone to speak to, and he might think that he wants to prescribe you pills. And I was like, what? Prozac? Like that, you know, really kind of like, because that's the only term I'd heard of uh, any antidepressant was just the brand name Prozac. And I was like, oh, my God, you must be joking. And he went, well, he might, he might not, but you should go. And I said, have you done that? And he went, yeah, of course I have. He's, he's eight years older than me, by the way. Okay, yeah. And he's a recovering alcoholic at that time as well. Okay. And uh, and he'd been sober for a few years, which is probably the reason I identified him as the person who might be able to help. And I said, I remember the thing that I really remember saying to him was, so you've been, you, you've been on antidepressants and been to a therapist? He went, yeah. And I went, have you told your missus, right? I mean, I look back and I can't believe I would have asked a question like that. And he like laughed and went, of course I have. What do you think? And I said, what? You had to tell her. What was that like? He went, she was fine about it. She was happy. And I couldn't get my head around the fact that, because I thought, oh, my God, if I told my wife, I didn't think she'd judge me as such. Mm. But I thought, oh, my God, I'll have really let her down. I'll have let her down so badly. We had a young daughter and we had another child on the way. And I thought, this is all she needs is for her, her husband to turn around when she's got a busy career of her own and the and, and stress of being a mother and needs my support. And I'm going to turn around with no good reason at all and say, oh, I'm falling to pieces here. I need to get on. I need to go to the doctor and get sorted out. Mm. I look back. I feel, To be honest, I just feel really sorry for myself when I... Not sort of my, I feel compassion towards my younger self, mm. and it was, and it's the the vivid memory of all those m- thoughts that I now think are so insane. All that worry I had around it, which just compounded the natural mental health issues I was suffering from anyway. The guilt and the panic that I was attaching to all of these things. I feel really bad that I didn't understand, and I feel grateful to my brother for sort of making it such a casual he'd never discussed it with me before but he was so relaxed and casual and my brother's very much a sort of a a blokey bloke you know we are particularly close because we always went we go to we've always in our family we were the two west ham fans we all support different teams me and my brothers but two of us were support west ham we've always gone to the game together my brother's a bloke he's like he's covered in tattoos and west ham tattoos and he's like he's a he's a geezer he's a he's a blokey bloke so he's not The fact that he was saying it probably was quite pertinent to me because it meant that it didn't feel that was the sort of male role model that I was probably comfortable with at that time in my life. And so I felt it was all right. And he was giving me kind of, you know, I felt like I had permission. But I look back and I think, God almighty, like that is really why now, age 46, I try to do a bit like you do and like so many more men do now to sort of talk and write and be open about this stuff because I look back at myself at 36 and I think I might not have been able to ever avoid the state of kind of overwhelm and crisis that I experienced at that age because that was rooted in a lot of different things that went way back. But 
what I could have avoided, what can be avoided is feeling those feelings and then flying into a sort of an extra layer of panic based on a sense of shame, embarrassment and and also trying to maintain a a facade and a secrecy, which is so exhausting and stressful. And I Mm. thought my problems would have been effectively halved if at that time I didn't have to go through the months of hiding it from everyone. And I did. And even after I'd had the conversation with my brother, I did continue to hide it from most people. Mm. I felt guilty every time I burdened anyone else with it. I did see a therapist. It was quite effective, but we didn't quite click. And in the end, I I gave up on it. Okay. Um, although I did get something out of it. And what then fast forward. Uh, just some simple thoughts at that stage. I mean, much more superficial to what I've got, what I have now in my the therapist who I ended up clicking with was another crisis had to come about, which was related to the the first incident, which was my drinking and drug taking getting out of control a few years later, and that was when I found a new therapist who I've now been seeing for over six years every single week pretty much from the day I gave up drinking to now and that's been a whole different relationship and that's been a real journey where I've learned so much and become very passionate about it um but back then it was much more simple stuff because I you know back then I was like I knew nothing at all about exam nothing at all I mean how I'd got to 36 and managed to avoid so scrupulously and diligently avoided any reflection on my own inner life or any matters of the human condition or why I thought or felt or behaved the way I did. It's actually astonishing because if you'd asked me, I would have thought of myself as a pretty open-minded person. I was a journalist who like, you know, one of the main reasons I was a journalist is I love to speak to people and find out about their lives and examine people's lives and be open to ideas and things like this. So I, I, I regarded myself a, a, as a curious person. But really, I think, well, that that is all phony. Bit. I mean, or maybe I was curious about other people as a distraction to ever being curious about myself because I was not just resistant to self-reflection. I was extremely cynical about the notion of it. I was also very aware of the fact that, you know, when this first hit me in my 30s, I was, you know, I was a bloke who'd had a lot of good fortune in his career. I had a happy marriage. I had a child and another one on the go. I owned a home. I had all the sort of superficial sort of trappings of what society might tell you is a successful, happy life. And so, of course, then on top of all the other stuff, I was deeply ashamed because the worst thing that you can be at least what I thought then the worst almost like the worst insult amongst the sort of blokes who I were friends with or grown up with or my brothers was a whinger no one wants a whinger I still use that now as the dirtiest word to my kids okay don't whinge there's nothing worse than whinging it's okay to be unhappy but don't bloody whinge right whinge Mm. is like such a powerful word and you do not want to be you do not want to be, you know, a white middle class male living in London in the 21st century in a nice house, navel gazing and going, oh, poor me. Right. You do not <laughs> want to be that guy. Right. Yeah. And and I was aware enough of my own sort of values in life that I would have judged 
and I had judged over the years. God, the amount of people who I was aware of, um, older than me usually, who I who who I would hear of, oh, you know, they're going through a real struggle, and you know, they lost their job or their business is doing badly, and da da, and he'd be like, oh, shut up, give me a break. I was I was that guy, you know, I was that I was that judgy person who couldn't really acknowledge anyone having a problem unless it was a very vivid and obvious material problem. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I knew nothing. But the first the first top, like therapist I went to see, I knew nothing whatsoever. I had n- no way of even understanding what it would be like. I probably still thought it was a guy who looked like Sigmund Freud lying you on a couch and trying to convince you you fancied your mother. That's what yeah. I thought it was going to be like. And the only reason I was there was because I was desperate. I was a wreck. Right. I I just was like, I was just sweating buckets every day. I couldn't function. I was just a nightmare. I was going on and on to my wife every night when she got in from work so much that she was starting to literally cry from having to hear it. Right. Mm. And that just made it me feel worse. And so I thought, I'm only here because I'm desperate. He said a couple of things that are just the very basic practical things in my head, like, you know, he talked to me in those first sessions. I remember the two things that, that landed with me in my first two sessions. One was about control and about how you can have a real preoccupation with being able to control life, but you cannot control a lot of what happens in life. And the first thing you need to do is accept and be okay with that, right? And I remember even that at that time being quite revelatory to me, right? Because probably a lot of my problem have been I can control everything that 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 happens you know I'm as as long as I'm not lazy and as long as I'm on it all the time which was sort of is very much been my kind of personality and approach to life I can sort of make sure all the outcomes are in my favor right I just have to work really hard and just stay focused and while other people are sleeping, I need to be awake and at it. And then that way I will be able to control all the outcomes being positive. Be ahead of and the, the other curve. Thing he, and the other thing he said was, I'll just, you know, you're looking too much constantly at the bigger picture. You're mm. constantly stepping back and looking at your life in this big way. Like, where do I stand? What's going to happen now? Where Where is the future heading? And he goes, and you need to narrow your worldview a little bit and look at, uh, putting one foot in front of the other, like what's happening right now, what's happening in this moment now, which I guess is what some people would call mindfulness, which was, again, not a term that was particularly common or fashionable at that time, 10 years ago. Um, But those were just two thoughts that were very basic in the first session that kind of helped me a bit. Um, But ultimately, I don't think we clicked as personalities. And so it took a whole different set of, situations for me to get more heavily into therapy yeah the thing about what you've just said in your story thank you so much for sharing that um the one thing about it is though because it's that point in time that 30 at mid 30s it's like a lot of people my age i'm turning 30 um by the time this comes out a month um from now and I think a lot of my friends were kind of going through that process of, you know, really trying to forge that path for us, like mm. one step in front of the other, that really trying to figure out what we do next. It's the first decade that we would have as a full adult 
in a sense. Yes. 30s, that's yeah. that decade, you know. It's, um, so it's really interesting where everybody is at in that in that moment. And it's really interesting that you said that 36 was the time that you kind of began to um, navigate that path of, you know, what it meant to be you, mm. you know, like um, having, you know, your brother revealing those things to you and you being like, what? What's going on? So, yeah. you know, and I think that's so important because a lot of men actually we think a lot of the time that we're alone in all of this, you know, as soon as long as we've got the things that we feel as if we are predestined to have had. So the house, the partner, the, the kids, the, um, all the material success, the job, money, whatever. Those are the things that we can present on the outside and say, this is what I've done with myself. This is what I've done with my life. Like, you know, I am a man. This is where I'm at. Until there is an emotional rupture that happens. Until there's something that we are withholding from other people and withholding from um, the, the yourself, first and foremost, because when you're withholding it from yourself, that's that's even, that's even more painful, I would say, than withholding it from other people. Um, and then in all of these disconnected moments and experiences, we end up, delving down the road of um things like addiction and things like things that we can control you know yes um and it's interesting what you said about that idea around control you're trying to really control those elements of your life and i think that and i mean they can control and suppress all of the stuff that's inside yeah by drinking by utilizing or using drugs by you know um promiscuity gambling all of those things they can just suppress all of the stuff that's happening inside because they can just put their attention elsewhere they don't need to focus on that and what i found is that a lot of the time is when speaking to people who have um been through those elements of addiction those parts of addiction it's so interesting to to figure out exactly what they were kind of running from or what they were trying to navigate um away from or avoid and so that's a question i have for you where what was it that you were trying to trying to navigate from because i remember you know this is where we are this is where we um have similarities you know i worked as a journalist as well for a good five years and it wasn't something that i necessarily enjoyed i did lo- I lo- for me i loved the writing i love speaking to people and then relaying their story into the publications and um, getting the good interviews and being able to do that sort of stuff. That wasn't always part of the job. A lot of the job, it was, you know, quite belittling. It was quite, there was a lot of distrust. It was a lot of um, posturing, you know, about kind of presenting in one way in order for you to... um, to really kind of, you know, a lot of the time there's a lot of dishonesty and a lot of that just, and, and as long as you got, as long as you got the story, it was always, um, it was always lauded over you, no matter how you got it, you know, yeah. you know, you, you probably breach the ethical guidelines a little bit. You could probably, you know, dally around that, dance in the gray areas for a while. But um, as long as you got it and you were robust and you were tough, it was all good. Um, and that was something that I couldn't really align with. But I recognized that I kept coming home um, or going out and I just kept drinking. I was, and I was, I would love going to, I worked at an entertainment desk for a while. I'd love going to those kind of events and there'd be an alcohol 
or I'd love, or I'd come home and the first thing I would do was pour myself a drink because I was so, quote unquote, stressed, um, um, completely stressed out. And I didn't, and I wanted to suppress it all. I wanted to decompress all of the stuff, um, but not necessarily feel it. But I thought that was a done thing to do. You know, you're watching things like Mad Men growing up and watching all of yeah. these stuff. You just literally, you pour yourself, you go in and it's just typical, you know, the dad or the man who walks in, he pours himself a drink, can't even get himself a glass of whiskey before he's like, you know, nagged by whoever in yeah. the house or something's changing him or going to the pub or all of these different things. And it wasn't, so when I started looking at that and and I listened to what you were saying and speaking to people who have gone through those elements of addiction and kind of redirecting the path in which I'm walking, um, it, 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 it is interesting. So what is it, do you think, that you were running away from, in, in a sense? Or what did you discover when it came to the whole addiction side of things and then speaking to the therapists and then navigating that? I think I was really, really afraid of so much in life. Um, I think fear, if I could sum it up in one one sort of, the, obviously it's very complex addiction and, and the reasons why you fall into this stuff. But I think the overarching theme when I reflect on it these days was real fear, right? And And a lot of the fear came from... Um, I guess a fear of failure. Like my control thing is quite interesting because I think I grew up in a household with a single parent mum and she raised four of us in a small council house. And uh, there was a lot of love, but it was very chaotic. And there was a lot of insecurity that surrounded our day-to-day life, sort of financial insecurity and also just other types of insecurity our house was quite mad there was always waifs and strays coming and going my mum would have different boyfriends from time to time so you never as a kid felt quite I was never I was yeah I was never physically unsafe as such not really I was uh, I was never sort of victim of kind of serious abuse or anything like that but everything was unsteady and unpredictable and inconsistent And it always felt like I just, you know, my mum was constantly engulfed in financial worries and we didn't know if she was going to be able to afford to get this out of the other and all that sort of stuff. However, my dad, who I never lived with because he sort of um, left and and started a new family when I was still just a little baby. But I did have a relationship with him and I would see him at weekends and and stuff like that. And, you know, maybe once a year we'd go on holiday. And he was doing well for himself, you know, by the time I was, you know, of age to sort of recognise what was going on. He, he, you know, he drove a nice car. He had his own business and him and his new wife and, and their daughter, my sister, they, they lived in a nice part of town in a nice house. And he also had, I mean, he was from working class background himself, but he also his siblings were doing all right for himself. So I had this glimpse of a different world where mm. things were not insecure and things were not quite so scary. And things just seemed to breeze along quite easily, right? And I increasingly reflect on my mindset as I sort of came out of adolescence and into adulthood as thinking, right, those are that's the that's the crossroads. Those are the two paths, right? I can either end up like I was as a kid in like our council house with no heating and it just being mental 
and there being weird people in the house and people taking drugs and drinking or fights breaking out or just madness, right? And sort of love, but you don't know what's going to be happening from one day to the next. It's all a bit scary. Or I could live like these other people who just seem kind of happy and relaxed. And even if problems emerge, there's nothing you can't fix by just pulling out your credit card or something like that, right? And I thought those were the two types of life. And so anyway... I uh, I really wanted to work in the media. I really wanted to be a writer. I was lucky enough to get an opportunity to do that. And I kind of made my career and my name as a, as a writer in magazines and then newspapers. And, and then I was working in radio and TV as well. And everything was going well. But the whole time, I was really running the whole time because I was running to think I have to secure a life of financial and social security right that is what i need to do i really really was stopping to enjoy the trappings of any of it i was constantly fighting to go further protect what i had and the idea that it could all just crumble and disappear tomorrow was very real in my head the whole time but i tried to um stave it off constantly and I think, you know, when I first had that sort of breakdown that I mentioned 36, I'd, I'd been a writer and I'd been sort of doing bits and bobs of broadcasting for a living and things had been going really well for me and got married, bought a house, everything was going well. And then out of the blue, I got off with a job editing a, a big magazine of which I had no experience of doing before. Mm. I had no experience in that sector of journalism, which was very much sort of showbiz journalism. I had it was a complete curveball out of the blue job offer that I got off the basis of my reputation as a writer. In all honesty, I was someone who who wrote in the newspaper and and people were aware of my work. And it was a complete curveball. I got literally one of those calls that you get one day saying, "Do you want to do this job?" And I just had a kid, was planning to have a second one. There was a lot of money. It felt so exciting and glamorous to be offered that opportunity. So I said, "Sure." And cut a long story short, I got it. And it was bizarre, but but it was a complete tangent to everything I'd been building up to in my career. You know, it was, I was in my early thirties. I had, my strategy had been going okay. Um, I was riddled by fear the whole time. I had imposter syndrome. I thought I was, I thought everything could collapse, but I knew where I was going. I'd had a couple of books published. I was writing in broadsheet newspapers I was broadcasting on BBC. I thought, this is the direction that I want everything to go in. I can see where this is heading. Then I get offered this edited role on a big sort of, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, but, you know, kind of trashy, exciting, fun magazine. I think, oh, so much fun. Got to do it. I said to my wife, doesn't really feel like me. And she went, yeah, but I remember her saying to me, we were on holiday when I got the official offer to come through. And she went, yeah, it doesn't feel like you. It, you know, this is not what you've been working towards. Fuck knows why they've offered it to you, to be honest. But she went, you'd have to be a wanker to say no, right? That was a word to me. And I said, yeah, I suppose you're right. So I did it, but it just wasn't me. You know, it was not me. And um, I only did it for like two years, slightly less. Quit because it was driving me mad. Although I wasn't I wasn't in a bad place with my mental health at that time. It was just stressful. Just and it was so... Job so clear that it wasn't for me and I had other opportunities emerging that were more up my street that I quit but the thing was was that after quitting I think it it had been such a big and dramatic sort of divergent part in my life 
that it really drove me to reflect because I thought, oh, hang on, I'm in my early 30s now. What have I actually done? What have I achieved? Where have I arrived at? Where am I heading? So you start asking yourself big questions. And I probably thought I'd wasted a couple of years on a mad sort of folly that probably shouldn't have ever been something that I should have done. And and I started panicking that I'd set myself back a couple of years and a couple of things went wrong for me in those first sort of six months after I'd left in terms of work. And I just was like, oh my God. And it triggered me off into a spiral and all the feelings and fears that I'd had building up inside of me for, for years and that I'd just been doing everything I could in my power to distract myself from, it all came home to roost. Fast forward to when I was in my, about three years later. So therapy had lasted for about a year, maybe a bit less. I'd been prescribed antidepressants. They'd sort of been quite effective, but then I'd come off them again. And life was getting stressful. By this stage, I had two kids. I was constantly taking on more work than I was really feasible for me to handle all at once because I had that thing of I've got responsibilities. I can't say no to work. I was burning myself out. And I start and I'd always been someone who had a tendency to drink. I'd always been someone who'd taken drugs, you know, at weekends in a sort of, you know, not in a what I felt at the time was just a casual, normal way. Don't see it that way now. But <laughs> but suddenly in the late in my late thirties, I let work pressure, stress, but more than anything else, a fear that that black dog was chasing me. You know, Mm. like Churchill used to call it the black dog, right? Yeah. And I felt like it was chasing me because I knew how bad it had been a few years beforehand and how what a long road it had been to get over it, right? And how it had taken months of sheer hell and just hating everything and having scary thoughts about, you know, what the point of life was and all the rest of it. And I and I thought that that's coming back for me. And so every time I got a glimpse of it, even on the distant horizon, yeah, I would drink. And so I went from being the sort of person who got trashed at weekends to being the sort of person who got trashed in the week to being the sort of person who actually got pretty trashed in the daytimes Okay. Uh, these are the sort of set, and it spiraled and escalated quite quickly at a particularly busy time in my life where I was overworked and exhausted. And before I knew it, all these things were going. The slippery slope is unbelievably like alarming because, you know, I was practically 40 and I've been drinking and taking drugs pretty much since I was 12, right? So okay. I thought, if I'm not going to be, if I've not become an adult or if I've not become an addict or a car crash by now, then I'm never going to. Right, I've got this on under control. That would have happened yeah. earlier in my life, so I thought it was fine. But the speed with which it can happen to anyone at any age is quite alarming, because within a few months, in about I don't know, two thousand thirteen, I just found myself very quickly going through those steps I just described. And before I know it, yeah, I was the, I was the cliche. I was chucking vodka in my orange juice in the morning to disguise the fact from my wife that I was having a vodka to kickstart my morning. Mm. I was, I was doing cocaine in the morning, you know, and I'm talking about dropping the kids at school, coming back in order to then get on my Vespa to go over to the other side of London where I was working at the time in a job that was very stressful and that I hated 
and thinking, oh, God, I feel really rough from last night. So I've, I've still got some cocaine in my pocket. So I'll do some of that now. I was promised myself I wasn't going to do any today, but I'll just do it this morning. And then before you know it, you get into work, you're stressed all over again. My response to every little minor bit of stress became drinking drugs, drinking drugs, drinking drugs. I started to withdraw from people around me who love me. I started to feel judged by them. And and my reaction to that was to be angry and resentful towards pretty much everyone. Mm. Even my wife in the end, who I'd you know, been with since we were like teenagers, you know, we were like, she's my best friend. We were like, you know, I trusted her with everything, been through everything together, even started to resent her, thought she was trying to tie me down, control me, all these other thoughts that are very common to anyone who's ever been an addict. Yeah. And before I knew it, I mean, it was just, it was, it was disgusting and embarrassing. And I felt awful. It's like, it's like this, it's like this feeling of trying to escape Mm. I was on the run, from yeah, from all, fear. From all things, like you were telling, mm. like the job, it was like the conformity, mm. everything, you know? Um, because I've seen that, um, well, in journalism anyway, it actually begs to question how many people are, are going through that sort of stuff in journalism. Mm. Because especially if you work in a, in a high-stressed, um tabloid for example or a or a broadsheet um yeah. probably magazine um like how many people are going to it's it's and you know i imagine it's quite common that people would would be would be doing those things just to just to stay present it's like that wolf of wall street situation isn't it like it's it's really I think it's a much bigger problem in journalism than we are allowed to know or believe. I think that a lot of newsrooms and, you know, radio is an industry that I've worked in a lot in more recent years since I got sober. And I can tell you, you know, the atmosphere in a, in a, in a radio newsroom or production office is very very high octane relentless very high speed very kind of aggressive and unforgiving mm. and print newsrooms are like that tabloid newsrooms are like notorious that yeah. i haven't spent i've spent a lot of time in tv and radio newsrooms in particular yeah. and and I've those seen places, print newsrooms print newsrooms and, are and, and, mad yeah and and I, and i just think it's very unforgiving it's very aggressive. It's very... I still think, even in this day and age, the attitude in journalism... And by the way, I am guilty of perpetrating this attitude when I've been in management positions, not just on magazines, but, you know, in production companies that I've run or, you know, I worked at a big television company in a senior management role for a while. And I've got to admit that you pass this shit down, the shit that got done to you. It's like when you read about what it's like at public schools. If you were bullied, right, by the bigger kids, you then bully the kids below you, right? Yeah. And I don't, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that I thought I was a bully, but I do think that my attitude was a bit, listen, why do you think I am here doing to being your boss now? It's because I went for all the shit that you're moaning to me about now. Right. And I just got on with it because that is the job. Get on with it. You're lucky to be here. Right. And that that attitude is 
I'm sure prevalent in all sorts of different walks of life in industries, mm-hmm. but I know what I know from the media and I know that's what it's like and it is relentless and it has to function that way, you know, as well, because especially now the media is in such financial strife, the traditional areas of the media that they have to constantly be pre- producing more for less. Yeah. And in order for that to work, you need to have a battalion of y- usually quite young people, right? Who yeah. you need to convince, you need to effectively gaslight into thinking that they're privileged to be there, right? And gaslight into thinking that they can't have any complaints about anything that, that they are asked to do, how they're asked yeah. to do it, the hours they work or or the way in which they're spoken to, yeah? And that that's just it. You're thrown in with sharks and it's like sink or swim, mate. And we all so, had a bit of that sink or swim, you know, yeah. and, and, and I, and I have to say, I experienced it as a victim, but I'm not going to pretend to you that I didn't, if I'm really honest with myself, say to people, again, that word whinging comes out, don't whinge, just get on with it. That's how this yeah. shit works. You know, do you know why that is so empowering for me to hear It's because when I was in it, that is, those are the exact attitudes that were directed towards me i was I, yeah. I i went into journalism at 23 and it was like and a lot of us were young in there there are some people who have had the, who had the opportunity to you know because their dads played golf with the editors yeah. of the newspaper or whatever so they had that kind of you know cultural understanding of what it meant to yes. be in there i i went in on a scheme which essentially was used against me pretty much most of the time um to represent a whole community <laughs> that mm. I had never like that that you know that probably wouldn't have access to there. So therefore that feeling of being told, you know, you should be privileged, you should feel privileged to be here. And it was a and it was and it was kind of spread to us in a way um, depending on who we are, depending on like as you know there were there were white working class people in my cohort. Mm white working class men in my cohort there were um there were two you know people from black backgrounds black african and caribbean backgrounds and then you know everybody else was like public school educated um oxford cambridge and then you know whatever postgraduate school that they all went to and it was just like and it was just this idea of the privilege of being there so therefore you cannot say no to things yeah that will that just go against your comp- your morals because you shouldn't have any morals because the morals should be of that of the publication that you're working for you know so you basically end up debasing yourself completely and it was that exact same thing so then you so then you see the editors above or people in higher positions and they've had to do all of that for you to for them to get there so you Mm. you know they called us bottom feeders and all these different things so it's actually so hearing you say that i've never actually had a conversation with a journalist about that and nor one where somebody was willing to openly say that, you know? Um, it's yeah, I mean, you just kind of run around the streets with holding under your I, armpit. And you don't I, I don't think that I'm not, I'm not calling out all of the people in the media and saying that they're doing no, it on no, purpose. No. I just think it's a cultural thing that many of us have been sucked into. There are some... There are some great things about working in the media. I mean, I remember when I was at Heat magazine, which was the magazine that I referred to earlier, I used okay. to, there would be younger kids and they'd be moaning, right? And 
I'd be like, and they'd be moaning about the most seemingly preposterous things to me, you know, about, I remember going, well, we haven't, no one's taken us out for drinks for ages. We used to always have sort of, you know, a few things. We used to always have, you know, they'd complain about mad things like they hadn't been taken to a fancy bar by the company for like a few months to get pissed or something like that. And I'd be like, right. And I and I and I became obsessed at that age, especially as a lot of them were from sort of more privileged backgrounds, maybe. And I thought these people are so entitled, and that's a word you hear management figures in the media throw around a lot about young people. Oh, they're so entitled. They think that they're owed this. They think that they're owed that. And they're, they're, they're and and then you always say, and I I can hear myself saying it. I never had that. I never I never had it was entitled to you know these working conditions i went through all this shit the thing is what i can now say stepping back and looking being a bit more reflective is everyone is entitled to be treated nicely everyone is entitled to you know be given a um a, you know a, a, an amount of work that is healthy for them physically and mentally right Everyone is entitled to respect. Everyone is entitled to compassion and care and all of those things. And just because I may not have received it, it doesn't mean that the next people along should have the same fate as me. In fact, the more mature and human thing to do would have been for me to have thought, I should now use my status to change the way in which things are done, right? Instead of thinking almost like bitterly, like, ah, well, I had to go through this hell, so now they have to go through it as well. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Um, and there's a lot of that across the whole media. I mean, yeah, I mean, there are so many people who are, who are burnt out. That, Like you say, there's a huge amount of posturing as well, which is all about who's doing well, who's successful, who can handle it, who can't, who's tough enough. You know, journalism is full of all of that stuff. Yeah. And, and I reiterate again, I've been the victim and the perpetrator of all of this stuff. Yeah. And I could see myself because I could see myself becoming, because lately I've had this, um, this really real dislike for the word resilience. Mm. Um, and I've been becoming, I could see myself when I was working of being, becoming, of using this word resilience as a way, as a badge of, mm. I've I've been battered, but you know mm. I'm still kind of robust, and it's yes. that thing, it's that armor, you know. What I mean, and I don't, and I think, and I've, and lately I've been looking at resilience and really thinking like resilience. I have no interest in resilience. <laughs> I have no interest in resilience because what it does mean is that you're you're it's like you're fighting against you're fighting to survive within a place. That won't change, for example, you know. Whereas, um, I'm more I'm more interested in the change and the courage that comes with creating that that change, you know. Um, so when it comes to resilience, it just becomes quite thing, and that's something that I was really trying. I was taking on board. I was kind of being like, you know, I've got to be resilient. I've got to be this. I've got to be that. I've got to just push through, no matter how this person talks to me or this person treats me or what stories are taken away from me and all these different stuff. I have to be resilient because that's what I've been told, and that's the things that I've been been told to do. And you know, 
this kind of leads me to the last the last bit I wanted to talk to you ask you about was then what did that do for you and your recovery? Um, I do find that recovery is important um, when it comes when it comes to these things and having gone through a lot of these uh, different experiences and how we then you know come out on the other of the other side. Mm. Um, you know, I look at it as being when I left when I left my job and I stood outside of the building um, and I looked up at the building and it was just this huge weight. Yeah. Yeah. Just off my chest and my back and my eyes welled up. And I was like, and I, all of this stuff just, just kind of happened to me. Cause I look, I was looking at, I was like, I'd left the old person mm. that was in there and that kind of had been, battered and beaten and then I'm just churned out outside now and here I am just kind of like raw and just like figuring out figuring it all out again um yeah what was it like for you to go through that aspect of recovery and kind of moving forward well I guess my recovery which is almost six and a half years since I since I sort of first walked in to see a therapist to address my drinking and 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 that day, actually, I, I stopped forever, or for, for this far anyway. But it comes in two sections. Okay, so the first one was, first of all, I quit. And I was mm. told very clearly in no uncertain terms by a specialist in addiction who has helped me ever since that there is no cutting down. That was probably the biggest bit of a best and simplest piece of advice that I've had because I was still under the delusion, believe it or not, back then that there was a way of managing my habits. And it's like, well, I don't, and that, that really is entitled because you think, oh, I don't really want to give up this thing completely because I do quite enjoy it. I just want to do it to a more manageable extent. That was a preposterous delusion. And it was made very clear to me by people who knew there, knew and been there and done it. No, no, you stop. If not, you will end up dead or worse. Your life will just be so awful, you know. Uh, so I stopped and and I started, I continued to, you know, receive therapy and I felt quite quickly like I knew a lot. There was an arrogance, which I've always, which has always been a, a problem for me as well in certain things I realise now. And I thought, brilliant, I've cracked this. I've given up drinking drugs. Also, I'm really getting to grips very quickly with psychotherapy, self-reflection, self-knowledge and growth. So I'm an expert in that now. Brilliant, right? I did some other things. I started a business within about the same month that I'd given up. The business took off fairly quick. We got some work in. I got my own TV show. Shortly after that, I got my own daily radio show. Everything seemed to be flying. I'm not a religious person, but it would be have been very easy for me to have slipped into thinking I'm being rewarded by God here because everything seems to be going right. The next thing I did was I became really, um, during the worst last few years of my drinking and everything, I'd got very bloated. I'd always been quite a slim bloke, but I got very bloated. Mm. I was really looking a mess, looking like a drinker, you know. Mm. So I got all this work on, everything was going well, and I thought, right, I'm also going to get really fit. So whilst I was doing this daily radio show, running a company, doing a TV show, still writing bits and bobs of the papers, I decided that I was going to train for a half marathon. So I started doing that. I changed <laughs> okay. my diet completely in a very extreme way. 
I'd seen mm. this film that I'd been obsessed with a few years beforehand called Limitless with Bradley Cooper and Robert De Niro, right? Yep. So it's a dark film. I look now and I think, God, what an adolescent fantasy that is. But I, <laughs> even in my 30s, was really sucked into it. I thought, I want to be that guy when he takes the magic pill, right? And I started thinking to myself, by giving up, by conquering my demons of, of drugs and alcohol, I have taken a magic pill and I can now, and I've lost a lot of weight. I got very fit. I was doing all of this work. I did some really exciting things like, you know, suddenly I, I went to Washington for the presidential election and covered it there on TV and radio when Trump was elected. And, okay. you know, and I was covering elections in the UK and interviewing and covered Brexit and interviewing all interesting and important people. And I felt like I was flying. And it went on for about three years. And those were my first three years of sobriety between 2015, and 2018. And I was flying by the seat of my pants. And I thought that sobriety made me capable of doing anything. I thought it was a superhuman power. And it wasn't. I was, I had jumped from one sort of toxic form of behavior to another. I realize that now. I think that I made some bad decisions during that time. I think there were times where I wasn't particularly pleasant to be around because I was constantly stressed and angry and probably, you know, probably, um, a, you know, let my ego get inflated by all of it, by the sobriety as well as the professional success, because it's almost like that. People think that you're immediately going to go to AA and, and reach this sort of inner peace and... Um, uh, serenity and be this beautiful enlightened person to be around I was not for those three years I was manic because I had replaced the uh, all the things that alcohol and drugs had been doing for me I'd, I'd just replaced them with other distractions and I burnt out and despite being in therapy and sober I more or less hit another borderline sort of point of like crisis in 2018 when I lost a lot of that work all at once in a flurry and it triggered me into another spiral and it didn't luckily I didn't fall off the wagon um but everything else my mental health went back almost to where almost catapulted back to where it had been before all of this had begun and I just hadn't really I'd been in therapy, but I don't think that I'd been, I think I'd got very good at talking the talk in therapy, but I don't think I was good at walking the walk in my day-to-day -day life. I, I almost thought that all I needed to do was not drink, not take drugs and turn up for my therapy session once a week. And everything else that went on around that was fine, right? But no, I mean, you know, this is a 360 thing. It's about everything to do with your life. It's about balance above all else right the very the practicalities of balance in your life really taking things terms that I would have thought very cool still think they're quite corny now but I believe in them things like self-care right mm. compassion towards yourself sympathy for yourself really being quite scrupulous about the way in which you map out your days and weeks right in terms of how you manage your time how you prioritize stuff, where you put your focus. I read something that you'd written recently about focus and it, it really spoke to me a lot because I think you are where you put your focus in life. It's so important. You cannot be a million different things. I'd been trying to be a million different things at once all my life and it burnt me out on more than one occasion. And I stepped away from all of that. And between 2018 and today, 
I've changed the way I work, the way I make a living, the way I live my life day to day, the things I prioritize and focus upon. And it's all much smaller. It's all based around balance. It's all based around being around people who I love and who love me. And nothing really else matters other than that. And the other stuff, whether it be financial blows or or professional blows or anything like that, those are ups mm-hmm. and downs that I can handle. So, you know, sobriety is great and I would espouse it to anyone. I try not to be preachy, but I'm the older I get, the more I'm like, you know, sobriety is absolutely brilliant because it's the starting point of everything else you can achieve in your life. But it is not a magic. I thought it was a magic thing, but it's not, you know, the opposite. I didn't, I just replaced it with work and exercise and just being mad. And um, so, th- so there are two sides. In my six and a half years of being sober, there very much breaks into two halves. And the first half of it, I can look back on now and think, man, I was what you call, um, oh, what is the phrase that I heard that I really like? Um, stark raving sober. Stark raving sober. Yeah. I'm going to, that's the title of the podcast. <laughs> I'm Delaney, stark raving sober. <laughs> Um, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Um, quickly, do you want to just tell people about the reset and um, what they can expect from 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 your platform there? So the reset, I call it mental health without the bollocks. I, when I going back to me talking about my older brother being the first person to almost like open up and switch me on to this kind of stuff. It meant a lot to me that he was, for me, and it's different for everyone, but for me, I needed someone who spoke to me in a way that was disarming. And for me, what worked for me at that stage in my life was I didn't want someone to be overly sympathetic. I didn't want someone to be overly sensitive. I didn't want to feel, I didn't feel comfortable with that. I didn't feel comfortable with the the language, the lexicon of mental health and wellness, any of that. It was very, so I do a I do a podcast called Top Flight Time Machine, which is sort of like a comedy podcast I do with a friend of mine called Andy Dawson. And occasionally on it, we veer into talking about reflecting on mental health and how we're feeling and stuff like that. And I talked about about addiction. Our audience on that podcast responded really well whenever I did, really well, and always wanted to know more. And I thought, well, it's not really a place for me to bang on about that nonstop. But because I got such a big reaction, I started writing the reset, a weekly newsletter on Substack, which you can find at samdelaney.substack.com and it was just me reflecting on different experiences in my life how I look at them now through the prism of my mental health struggles talking about addiction sobriety just but trying to write about in a very conversational down-to-earth way um so that I hope to some men who I know are the ones who are struggling most to sort of get to grips with these conversations and be open about them and re- understand they're not alone. I just want people to know they're not alone. I want blokes to feel more comfortable. I want them to feel as comfortable about talking about this shit that you and I are talking about as they would be about talking about football in the pub, right? Yeah. Um, I want them to realise that it's not weird, it's not weak, it's not whinging. It's just part of being human. So I started writing it. It became quite popular. I built some subscribers. And then I also started doing a weekly podcast in which I speak to various people, some of them are famous, some of them aren't. They're from all different walks of life, but it's just about different aspects. Um, 
I think that, you know, there's a lot of people doing it, not least yourself, doing it absolutely brilliantly. And I think that sometimes the things that we're saying are, you know, they're, they're similar things. You know, people, there's a, there's only so many things in this world of like mental health and wellness that, that you can say. But, but what I think is it's really important that different voices are saying it in different ways because... It's not a one size fits all. And particularly amongst men who we know are struggling to open up about this stuff and feel very isolated and very private about their feelings. Very often it's because they've heard the advice and the advice is sound, but the way in which it's communicating doesn't quite speak to them personally. So the more different types of voices we've got out there talking about these issues, the better, because that means every bloke's got a chance of finding that one person. It's like finding a therapist in that sense, you know, you will find that one person who's out there publicly talking about it that just clicks. You think, yeah, I relate to his worldview. I I, re- I relate to the way in which he speaks. I relate to his humour or his attitudes or whatever it is. And there's lots of different people. The more people doing it, the better. And I always say to anyone who's been through similar journeys to you or I, if you're a bloke, you know, once you feel comfortable with it, just you don't have to do it on a podcast or a blog. But just do it, even if it's just in casual conversation with your mates. Just bring this shit up, pass it on, because that's what we all need. For sure. What do you think it means to you to be human? I think human, I think being a human is, I think it's it's difficult, it's full of challenges, but you know, love is the most important thing, is what I've learned. It's the simplest thing. I always thought all you need is love was a trite thing to say or to sing in a song. Mm. But the older I get, the more I realise is that that's our, that is our um, superpower, right, is to, is to show love and feel love and be surrounded by love. That is our superpower. That's almost what we've got over anything or any other species almost, you know. It's like we've got that. And if you can just focus on that, then that is what will go through. And, and life is not perfect. And being a human is very difficult. And you will never get rid of the struggle. So you can forget about that. Put part the idea that you're ever going to find a way of controlling life and stopping struggles and challenges and sadness coming along. But if you focus on love, love towards yourself as well as others, then you've got half a chance. And I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for joining me this week, Sam. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. Uh, I appreciate you. Thank you. <laughs>